Hey everyone, uh, it's YK here and the other day I had an interview with Helen who is a machine learning engineer right here in Toronto and in this interview we talked about things like uh, deepfake, NLP and women in data science and machine learning. I really enjoyed having this conversation so hopefully you will too. I'm Helen. I'm a machine learning engineer at DESA, which is a Toronto-based artificial intelligence company that builds and ships machine learning at scale. And so I've been kind of in the Toronto tech community for a few years now and uh, have done machine learning for a variety of different verticals, including telecommunications, um, as well as credit and banking. Um, and most recently in kind of the uh, marketing space. And so that was really neat to um, get exposure across a lot of different industries. And most recently, a lot of my focus has been on natural language processing. I see. So we actually uh, did a video several months ago uh, that, was, uh, that was called uh, Q&A with Machine Learning Engineers. Uh, so I'm kind of curious. Uh, is there anything new since uh, we did that video back then? Yeah, so the team at DESA has done a lot of really neat work since then, actually. You might have seen some of it around on the web around deepfakery is the hot topic that we've been discussing this year. So kind of the conversation around deep fakes as well as how to go around preventing them and so some members on the team have done a lot of really great work around creating and detecting um, deep fakes and so actually there is a documentary coming out this Sunday uh, featuring some members of the team and the work that they did on creating deep fakes but then also asking these hard questions around what do we do in this new world? How do we successfully, um, preventatively defend against these? What are the measures that we have to take and what are our responsibilities as technologists? But then also people who fit into a much larger ecosystem, um, including policy to um, take responsibility for this kind of tech. So what do we do? And so that's been actually the big topic that the team's been discussing over the course of the year. I see. Uh, so that documentary is going to be on Netflix or something? It is the New York Times The Weekly. And so you'll be able to see it um, through their official channels and then also on YouTube. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen it yet either. And so we're all really excited. Right. So I understand that like you personally did some work on uh, deep fake uh, natural language processing. Uh, yeah. Products. So this year I spent some time um, playing with language models actually, and so two projects that I worked on were um, kind of around these themes of can you emulate these famous characters and so one of them being the fake Trump project and you can go to faketrump.ai and actually see this project but basically what I did is I took um, GPT-2 which is that uh, language model um, released or non-released by OpenAI earlier this year I scraped Twitter for all of Trump's tweets 
and then fine-tuned um, GPT-2 on these tweets and then worked with another engineer on the team. We turned it into this game where you basically have to differentiate between the real tweet and the fake tweet. And so we released this out into the world and people are tweeting these scores and we're finding that most people are getting 5 out of 10 on average, which is so crazy because it just highlights how hard it is now to differentiate between um, text that is written by a human being and is very stylistically distinct and then how well these models can learn to generate new text that is virtually indistinguishable. And so that was really crazy to me to see how that all shook out. The other project that I did in this space was kind of just for fun. Um, it's called Whale Fakes, and you can go see this on Twitter, at Whale Fakes. And so I'm a big fan of this Twitter account called A Whale Fact, which is a humorous Twitter account that tweets true things about whales. Um, and so what I did is I scraped all of these tweets and then fine-tune the model to output more facts about whales and it learns these really crazy things like um, whales would never forget a dog's name just like all of your dads <laughs> or um, yeah do you know that at least one whale is on drugs and just totally ridiculous things about whales and it's hilarious and so I just have literal years worth of whale tweets now and oh. they're all insanely funny and so you can actually go see those on the internet I just put them out there and other people think they're funny too apparently right so that was really interesting to me um, just to like poke around these language models and I'm constantly amazed by how well they're able to pull off these very distinctive written voices yeah yeah it's crazy that these models are able to you know write things that are actually funny mm -hmm. in the case of the trump one they learned uh about the weird capitalization and they learned to like scream in all caps uh, <laughs> and then in the case of the whale model um it learned to use emojis in the same way and so it actually outputs whale emojis and um it talks about krill and it talks about um, baleen wheels and it says things like I baleen in you which is just oh. so excellent yeah so it is constantly amazing to me right and it's not it's not even that much data right no yeah. it was a few thousand tweets and right. so um, you've got like thousands of tokens basically but at the end of the day when you look at it it's only a few hundred megabytes of data at most right so when you look at that model uh, that you used, does it have any previous knowledge of the English language or does it uh, start from the scratch? So because it's a fine tune, it has all of the knowledge from the original GPT models um, that were previously trained. And so what you do is basically take this new data set and you just train the transformer layers. And so it knows kind of about the probability distributions of the English language as um, from the web corpus that they were originally trained on, but then it also picks up all these stylistic things that wouldn't have appeared previously that only appear in the tweet data set. Right, so it's almost like uh, a person who speaks English uh, reading all, 
all the Trump tweets and trying to like recreate another tweet just like those. Yeah, yeah, so it does have a bit of a baseline already, and then it is learning to um, pick up new style. Right. Yeah, and that fine tuning works surprisingly well. Right. That's like kind of cool and kind of scary at the same time. A little bit. Yeah, because I can totally see you know, fake news being created by AI bots. Yeah, yeah. so Alan AI actually did a research study on this. They have a model out called Grover. And how it works is that they found that by taking a language model, they can actually produce fake news that is more believable than actual news headlines. And you can go play with their demo, but it was fascinating to me to see the amount of um, surprisingly comprehensible fake news that they were able to output with this model. And so I think it'll be really interesting over the next little bit as we try to figure out what we're going to do about this and what are the technological advances that we need to make as well as what are the policy changes that we need to be talking about. Right. Yeah, that sounds really scary to me. I think it's fascinating that we're here. It's a really interesting point in time to be in machine learning and to be part of making sure that we're doing this right and that these scary things go well. I think that's really interesting to me that we're here. Right. So like generating uh, generating fake news would be like a bad uh, use of this technology. Uh, but are there any like um, you know, potential positive applications of technology that you see? Mm -hmm. I think that the creativity that this kind of work lends itself to is incredible. I think that you're able to use this to supplement creative writing, for example. And you can look at a demo done by Hugging Face, um, Write with Transformer, where you're able to actually do this for yourself. And so I think there's so much potential to augment the work being currently done by people in creative industries, people who um, work in humor, people who are trying to do creative writing of some sorts. I think there's so much potential for these language models to act as inspiration, to give prompts, to um, help augment just human creativity in these really unique ways. So I think there's a lot we can do there, actually. Right. So I guess the ideal sort of scenario is people and uh, AIs working together to create something. I think so. And I think that there'll be things that are imperfect about these language models, of course. And when you look at them, they're not always comprehensible. And so I think they are best um, put together in conjunction and you come up with way better things uh, when you have these working together. Right. All right, and uh, I understand that you did something uh, with the same model uh, uh, and with the Hong Kong issue too? So I recently spent six weeks at the Recurse Center in New York City, which you can kind of think about as a writer's retreat, but for programmers. And so um, it was a little bit of a different model, but what I did is that Twitter has this data set on the Elections Integrity Hub that they have dumped around accounts that are related to state-backed disinformation actors of some sort. And so Twitter is 
part of this um, public conversation where they are trying to ensure that the platform is as honest and uh, positively contributive as possible. And part of that is saying, we need to be more transparent about um, these activities going on. So they dump these data sets about these accounts, these tweets, and all of the associated media for these state-backed disinformation actors who have been tweeting about, most recently, the Hong Kong protests. And so I did a deep dive into this data set for myself um, when I was at the Reeker Center. There's, I actually built a dashboard where you can go and take a look at all of this um, data for yourself and I'll, I can send you a link for that. But basically what you realize is that these accounts are being bought in large quantities and they kind of already are established in whatever community they are. A lot of them are spam, but basically what happens is that these accounts are used to project a certain message about um, Hong Kong politics in some way or another. And what was really interesting to me was that you take a look at the history of these accounts and realize that they've actually been working on disinformation and smear campaigns for a couple of years now. And that to me was just really crazy to see it all mapped out on uh, a computer and just for you to be able to take a look at all of this data and understand that this has actually been going on for a lot longer than people have been talking about in mainstream media was really crazy to me. I see. Uh, so was that sort of like a data analysis type project? Yeah, so one thing I wanted to do was try to understand, um, so you do all this analysis on this data, and then from there, one thing I wanted to really understand was can you identify the point at which um, these accounts turn into propaganda accounts? Because they don't start off as propaganda accounts. They start off talking about recipes and popular media and movie reviews and everything. And so one thing I wanted to do was understand, can you take a look at when these accounts are turning into propaganda accounts? And then can you also cluster these tweets and understand the different topics that people are talking about? And that was a really interesting exercise because it worked semi-well on just English, but a lot of these tweets are actually in a lot of different languages. And so these bot accounts tweet in over 60 different languages over the course of the several year time span. And so what I found when I was doing this project actually was that even though you have these models, so I was using the universal sentence encoder for reference, which is a pre-trained model um, that has been trained on multiple languages. What I was finding was that it was able to glean some kind of interesting insight on just the English tweets, but then there was a lot that actually wasn't supported or it would just kind of be nonsensical on different languages. And so, I'm actually really curious to see where the NLP community um, focuses effort on different languages actually in the near future because, for example, when I was looking at tweets in um, Chinese, there wasn't any support for things like entity recognition. Um, and there was some support for encoding them, but then the results um, were not nearly as insightful as the ones you would get from English. 
so that was really interesting to me because I didn't know a whole lot about the state of natural language processing in um, regards to non-English languages before I did this project and so that was kind of an interesting way to get into it and understand that much of modern natural language processing has been so far done on English corpuses by researchers in um, English-speaking labs, and so that's where the majority of the focus has been so far. And I'd love to see how that changes over the next little bit. I see. Uh, so, like a little bit more about your project, uh, you had uh, these like bunch of tweets and uh, Twitter accounts, and then you did some NLP analysis. Uh, and then you were able to identify when these accounts turned into propaganda accounts? So here's the thing about that. What you end up realizing is that, um, so what I tried to do originally is model this as kind of a time series representation, but then what you do when you start taking a look at the data is you realize that accounts just don't turn into, from going normal into propaganda. They are normal and then maybe they send out a propaganda related tweet and then they go back to tweeting about movie reviews and they go back to tweeting about recipes and it all kind of goes back to being a spam account. But then suddenly, um, maybe months later, they get in on another controversy and they start c contributing to that conversation. And so I started doing that originally, but then realized that it doesn't quite make sense to look at these in this lens of does an account just turn into a propaganda account. You kind of have to look at um, the change in the topics over time as opposed to just as an account level because you end up finding that they kind of all get mixed up. These accounts are being smarter in that they still try to kind of camouflage themselves as um, regular people even though they happen to be participating in propaganda related conversations online and so that was something actually a hypothesis that I was proved wrong on which was really interesting um, because I went in kind of thinking that it would be cool to model this as a time series representation and understand the uh, time at which it became very different in the way that they were discussing, but then you realize that that's a much too naive way of thinking about a problem like this. And right. so that for me was a really interesting learning experience. I see. And uh, you were you were saying earlier that what you found surprising was the amount of uh, propaganda that was going on, right? So. It has been going on for longer than I realized. So when you look at this group of accounts, yes, they were tweeting in 2019 about the current Hong Kong protests, but they were also tweeting about Hong Kong and that was a year ago, or they were tweeting smear campaigns against a famous Chinese businessman who spoke out against the Communist Party several years ago. And it's these same accounts that have been doing this over and over again. And I, for one, had no idea that this went back several years in the making because I think 2019 has been this year where we've been talking about deep fakes and we've been talking about misinformation and we've been talking about um, the state of social media and what that 
all ends up looking like. But what we haven't really been talking about prior to this point is that this has been happening for much longer than just this year and with just this controversy. This has been happening for several years now. Wow. And uh, how, uh, I'm just kind of curious, how are you able to tell that these are not real people? So Twitter has actually done a thorough investigation on these accounts to identify them as being related to state-backed disinformation actors in some way, and they don't release their methodology on that, and so that is a little bit opaque to me. And it's not even to say that they're not real people, it's just to say that they are related to some kind of coordinated state-backed campaign of some sorts, and that happens to be against the rules and regulations of the platform. And so they could possibly be real people is the thing. And it is the nature of the activity that they're doing, which is making it controversial. Right. So even if they were real people, they, they weren't acting on their own. Right. The coordinated nature of this is what people are often really interested in. Right. Uh, did you publish anything on this? So I wrote up actually a quick post about it and the dashboard is online and I can send this to you and you can actually go in there, you can play with all the data, you can look at all of the tweets from all these accounts over several years, you can look at the trends in aggregate, you can look at the rise in the language spoken over time and so there's a really interesting graph that you can play around with where you can kind of see the rise of tweets in Chinese actually coinciding with really interesting controversial points in time. You can also take a look at what time of the day these tweets were happening and you can take a look at um, the individual actors and what their accounts look like and all of their individual tweet history as well. So I've made that all accessible in this dashboard online and you can actually go in there and look at the same data set that I was looking at. Yeah. I think I'll go take a look later. Cool. Yeah, it seems like something media might pick up too. I hope it makes it more accessible for a lot of people to start looking at this kind of data because I think what's tough is that when you dump a big data set like this, it's hard to be able to know what where to start if you don't have data analysis capability already. And so what I've tried to do is make it accessible and make it so that anybody can start looking through this data and hopefully right. that leads to some education on the kinds of things that are happening around us. Yeah. Um, so I want to switch the topics a little bit and ask you, um, do you ever talk about being a woman in data science and machine learning? So actually, I help organize the Toronto Women's Data Group. That's something that's actually very dear to me. And so yesterday at TMLS, actually, I was part of the uh, Women in Data Science celebration run by my friend Maria. And so what I'm really excited about is to see this group of technical women get together and share their experiences and find a place here in Toronto where they can talk about what they're really, really good at and that we can give them a place to share their experiences and to share their expertise and to help them shine. And so one thing I'm always really excited about is that when we host events, we feature female speakers 
working in data science from different sponsor companies and to me it's always insanely cool to see what kind of work that they're doing what kind of projects that they're on and to see that you have these awesome technical women working in data all across Toronto and to get them here in one place is just super neat to me so that's something that I'm super passionate about right, nice uh is there any like shared experience or like a common experience among the women in data science? I think it's so deeply individual, but what I've heard from a lot of people in the group is that they've loved having this place that you can kind of get to know people in the field. And so I know for a lot of women, often you may be the only person in the room, the only woman in the room, or um, you might be working on a team where, or a project where you're the only woman. And so I've loved being able to create a space where you have all of these women who are working in data. And what people have told me is that they have loved getting to know each other over the course of several meetups and so what's neat about the group is that you'll be able to get to know each other month over month at different events and it's really exciting to me when somebody gets a new job and we're able to celebrate with her or somebody's got this really cool achievement and um, you're like oh I know them and I feel like I've gotten to know them over the course of this little bit and so seeing that experience of people celebrating each other's achievements with each other is incredibly cool to me and so I've loved that and I love that that's one of the things that people get out of the group. Right. So like uh, having this community and supporting each other, getting to know each other is important for you and for them too. Mm -hmm. Nice. Uh, and I understand that you care about uh, data for good too? Yeah, so one thing that's interesting to me is that you, I was thinking about this when I was in New York and this thought that you have this incredible skill set as a data scientist or a machine learning engineer and the question is what are you going to do with it? And so it is really interesting to me, for example, to work on things like misinformation, where there's so much data out there and there are so many opportunities for you to make this data more accessible to people, to help out with education. And that to me is something really special about this um, skill set and so I love that this is a place where people care about being mission driven. People um, go out to things like the Data for Good meetup and they are really excited about using this technical skill set to further things that really really matter and so there's so many places in the city where you can be part of projects like this and so that's something that I'd love to see grow in this ecosystem as well. I see. Um, I'm guessing that your work with Hong Kong uh, propaganda was part of it, you know, data for good for you. Yeah, that was, so this study of misinformation I think is just one of the most important problems of our current lifetime. And I was thinking about what I wanted to spend my time on at the Recurse Center actually 
and I just knew that I wanted it to be something that was immediately important and could help with public education in some way and so that to me seemed like a perfect opportunity to get into this data set that was fascinating from a technical perspective but also tackles a really really important problem right now right uh okay i think uh, those are sort of all the questions that i wanted to ask but is there anything you want to add to this conversation i guess just being here at tmls over the past two days i think one thing that I'm really excited about and just that I've talked about with people over the past couple of days is that Toronto's tech ecosystem is growing at this crazy pace and it's a really interesting point in time to be here and so I've loved that. I've loved going out to an event like this and being able to feel like it's the center of Toronto tech for two days and hearing about people building ambitious things and tackling big problems and so I'm really excited to be here. I'm really excited to um, feel like this is a tech ecosystem that is just going to explode over the next few years and I'm really excited to be part of that and so I've loved Toronto Tech and I feel like it has welcomed me and I'm really really thankful for that so I'm glad we're all here together. Yeah. Cool. All right, great. Thank uh, you for thank having you. me. Thank you so much. This has been lovely.